Welcome to the Here Be Dragons podcast. My name is Brett Landry, and uh, we have a wonderful episode for you. And uh, this is the third time I've now recorded the introduction for it because things are moving quickly with regard to the coronavirus, COVID-19, and what we think uh, about the response that we're seeing around us in the city around us, in the country around us, around the globe, and what we should be thinking about this as Christians. This podcast is being posted on the evening of Thursday, March 12th. We recorded an interview with an epidemiologist on March 10th, uh, with also a registered nurse on March 10th, and then Jake and I did some content about the church history and how we might think about this historically and trying to look at it with a, a really wide lens. We recorded that yesterday on uh, March 11th, and the the speed with which this thing is moving and the way that our city has had to re- respond to it, we've just been given word that uh, basically our church cannot gather this coming Sunday. And so some of the stuff you're going to hear in this interview is certainly not going to, uh, it's, it's, out, it's out of date by 48 hours. And uh, the rest of it, I think, is fine. But we wanted to be able to get this content to you as quickly as we could. So we hope you enjoy this episode. Uh, we are talking about coronavirus, COVID-19. We are talking with an epidemiologist. We are talking with a very well-spoken, well-educated, and experienced registered nurse. And then we're going to break down some church history in the way that Christians have responded in the midst of plagues. Uh, really looking forward to this. want to introduce to you... Uh, the epidemiologist first, um, and then we'll have a few thoughts on that, and we'll move into our conversation with our nurse, and we'll move into a couple thoughts on that, and then we'll wrap up this episode by talking about uh, just different ways that the Church of Jesus Christ can respond in Vancouver in 2020, informed by the mercy and the eschatological view of the Church of Jesus historically, particularly coming out of the middle of the 4th century where they are allowing their future hope to inform their current practice and the way that they're engaging with the lost and dying in the midst of a ter- just a, a, a horrific plague. So that's kind of how we're going to approach this. Um, yeah, have a, have a go at this conversation with our epidemiologist. Welcome to the Here Be Dragons podcast. My name is Brett Landry, and I'm sitting down today with Jake Lefave. And I want to introduce to you... Uh, one of the founding members of Christ City Church, uh, Jay, why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself? Thanks, Brett. Uh, really happy to be here and appreciate you inviting me onto the podcast. Um, before we begin, though, I should disclose that the content being discussed today represents my personal perspective and that anything shared does not necessarily reflect the views of any single organization, agency, or institution. If I could get you and your co-hosts to sign here, here, and here, I think we're ready to start. Oh, what have <laughs> yeah. we gotten ourselves into? That was heavy. Yeah. Wow. But necessary, Jay. Necessary. Yeah. Yeah. So my name is Jason. I'm an epidemiologist at a large public health organization. I've been doing this on and off for a little over 10 years. For some of your listeners who may not be familiar with the term, epidemiology is the study of the distribution and determinants of health-related states in specified populations. Or in other words, we work to understand how diseases impact groups of people and help figure out what we can do to stop them. Okay. One good example, conveniently enough, is this recent novel or new coronavirus. Oh, that's what novel means in novel coronavirus. Jake has, a, Jake has a literature degree, so he, he, he believed that was a story, I think. A fictional story written by somebody for public consumption. Yeah. Right now we're at sort of the rising action, yes. looking for the yes. climax. Look, yes, looking yeah. for the, yeah, the plot structure. Yeah. So novel coronavirus. Uh, Jay, help us understand coronavirus is something that's kind of a bigger catch-all. What are we talking about here with the new one? 
Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, coronavirus is actually the name of a large family of viruses. It's called so because some pictures of the virus look a little bit like a crown, not because it has anything to do with the popular beverage brewed in Mexico. Got yeah, Corona. Cer- These viruses Cerveza. can cause minor diseases where symptoms are similar to what we call the common cold, but others have been more problematic, escalating to more serious respiratory illness. For example, many of us remember the SARS outbreak around 2003, and some of us may have heard about the MERS outbreak around 2012. Both of these high-profile outbreaks were caused by coronaviruses. Really? So th- those yeah. are strains of a coronavirus? Yes. Okay. So this new coronavirus, the official name is actually SARS-CoV-2. Infection by this virus causes the disease COVID-19, or coronavirus disease 2019. Okay. The oh. first case was identified around the 1st of December in 2019 in the Chinese city of Wuhan. Oh, okay. Good grief. So there is, I'm just going to try and recap this for all the people who have peanut-sized brains like me and Jake. Coronavirus is the large strain. Uh, SARS-CoV-19 is the current, you help me out, Jay. This is also SARS-CoV-2. COV-2, okay. Is, is and the then, name of the virus. And the virus. And then it causes a disease that's called COVID-19. Okay. Jay, on the scale from zombie movie, I'm thinking like World War Z, like 28 days later, and like this is not a big deal, how should we think about uh, the coronavirus? Uh, What's happening? Well, Jake, with regards to Hollywood films, I would have to say perhaps Contagion is going to be the best one to look at. Okay, good, good. It'll give you a basic understanding of what happens behind the scenes to a public health response with a little bit of drama and entertainment thrown in. That movie scared me into washing my hands more. That's what that movie did. I remember seeing that in the in the in the theater and coming out and being like, "I just need to wash my hands right mm, now." Mm. That's 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 okay, right? That's perfect. I'm I'm glad it had that impact on you. <laughs> that's the desired impact of a movie like that is to actually keep our population alive by cleanliness. It should be mandatory viewing right now. Basically hygiene. So, okay. So Jay, you're saying contagion uh, and explain for those of us who haven't seen contagion, like, or, or just explain wh- where that puts us on the scale. Well, it's a similar progression. Um, there's a lot of parallels between what's happening today and what's happening uh, or what happened in that particular movie. There was a outbreak. It was detected uh, in Asia, spread around the world. It discusses how different governments responded to the outbreak and the impact it had on everyday citizens. We're nowhere near that scale of of societal breakdown, um, so I don't want to mislead anyone to thinking that that's a prediction of the future. Um, But if you want to understand some of the basics of epidemiology and that's the science behind tracking and monitoring these outbreaks, then it's a great place to start. Oh, cool. So, I mean, where are we at then, Jay, in, in in with regard to the public perception you know, you've got people uh, on, in the news media really sounding alarm bells. And, and then there's at the same time, you've got people who don't seem to be affected by it at all. I mean, my, I went to the gym yesterday. It was still busy. There are people working out, sweating, you know, given the odd cough and the odd like high fiving each yeah, other. Exactly. There's just a, like a, a level of looks like no concern. And yet I also know that there's people who have kept their children home from my kid's school because they're afraid. Um, where should we be at in terms of thinking? And I'm not looking for you to give a prescription, you know, in general, but just how do we think about this? I wouldn't say that there's like a a threshold to change your behavior. Every single person is going to be able to make their own decisions on what's based 
uh, or what's best for their family. Um, I, I could talk a little bit though about the stages of progression of a disease and how it typically impacts people. And one of the ways that we monitor how this disease is progressing through the population. So with most respiratory outbreaks, outbreaks the spread generally follows a pattern. Uh, first, we identify cases of disease. These cases are usually associated with international travel, such as Canadians returning from disease hotspots. Second, we start to see clusters of disease, that is, cases that are confirmed human-to-human -human transmission, but between close contacts, such as family members, roommates, or someone else the original patient was close to. Finally, we see community transmission. This is where people are identified as having the disease, but haven't traveled and are not linked to a cluster or specific case. In these circumstances, the person was just going through life, acquired the virus, and became ill. Usually when things hit that third stage, we start to see more uh, social distancing, schools closing, people not going to the gym, when people feel threatened at a personal level. So, I mean, we've, that's been in the media here that, that Vancouver has Canada's first community transmission case, and, and sadly, we've also had the first, uh, the first fatality from this disease um, just you know, yesterday or the day before uh, in a care home in North Vancouver. And so I know that there's a lot of concern around those things. I know in uh, where the I know I know this because of following the NHL, but the the San Jose Sharks, the county that they play hockey in in California, has said that they've banned all group gatherings, and so they're having to try and figure out what they're going to do in terms of yeah, a like game. over a thousand people, right? Yeah, you can't yeah. have more than that many people in, in yeah. the room. So is that because of the community outbreak uh, scenario where we've kind of progressed to that stage of this outbreak? There are regions in North America where they feel like they've hit that stage and they're Im implementing public health measures to contain it. And that's a great start. So, Jay, I mean, for us, I mean, you're not uh, in the city, but for us in Vancouver, would you be driving down to Seattle right now to catch like a, I don't know what's going on in Seattle, a concert or something like that? Or would you be kind of st staying like far away from, from places like Seattle uh, and the surrounding area where there have been some of these community cases? That's a great question. I was just talking about uh, the same thing with my wife if if uh, we've always wanted to bring our kids to disneyland and they're starting to get old enough that they're starting to to second guess whether or not disney characters are real or fake right and uh i i'm personally going to be really entertained as a parent to bring them to disney world with no prompting and they start seeing these things in real life <laughs> yeah. and having an existential crisis <laughs> but if we had this plan for for the next month or two uh, i'm not exactly sure if we would uh, to to go, I don't I don't know if we would. So Jay, can I drive can I, can I drive this home? I'm going to Disneyland this summer. Should I seek refunds on my tickets? <laughs> it's a great question. The the insurance component of this is is another. Uh, it's a wild card in this right now. But generally speaking, if you're precluded to going to a place and you've pre-booked your tickets to a credit card, there you do have some form of cancellation insurance. But if you were to book a trip today, then there's questions as to whether or not that would be. Uh, um, that, that people would have access to the cancellation trip because the argument is that they knew what they were getting into. Right. So uh, I'm thankful that my wife and I don't have to answer that question right now because we haven't booked tickets. Mm -hmm. But in all reality, you're going to have to do what's best for your family. And as the situation uh, progresses, uh, there's going to be a really difficult question to answer. So, and that's a question I have too, Jay, in terms of the timeline for something like this, like when, and again, please excuse the ignorance here, but it's very, very obvious on my end. Uh, when does something like this quote unquote blow over? Mm -hmm. When does it blow over? That's a good question. Um, everything you guys are asking is a great question. Thank you. Um, 
this is pure speculation and conjecture on my end, um, and so I just want to be clear on that. But but I have the belief that this coronavirus is going to become uh, something called endemic, and that is the pathogen that inf it's a pathogen that infects and circulates among populations indefinitely, uh, kind of like the common cold, at least until an effective vaccine is deployed to disrupt the cycle. So you'll remember previous outbreaks like SARS. Uh, it got national attention. There was an immediate response. And we were actually uh, able to contain the virus uh, by, by quarantine and, and case tracking, and, and, and we shut down the transmission. We're well past that stage with this particular virus. It's already spread to way more people, and it's becoming more and more difficult to stop it from progressing through the population. So, so, so we're just looking at each other here because obviously you're on the phone. We're, neither of us is quite sure. I've, I haven't heard that. So that's a new thing to me. You called it endemic? Endemic. Where it becomes just part of the regular cycle of viruses in the world. That's right. Like if you think back, there was a time where HIV was unknown. We didn't live with the knowledge of HIV. Okay. Now we have HIV. And we have some treatments, and, and there's best practices, and we understand the virus now. This new virus, coronaviruses have been known for a long time, but they've never been endemic. There's the, uh, the MERS outbreak, um, which is primarily focused on the Middle East and Northern Africa. Um, there was a huge spike, specifically in Saudi Arabia. It's tailed down, but it, it hasn't quite gone away. But we don't see this global dissemination the way we do uh, with this new outbreak. Um, it's in so many countries, it's infected so many people, it's hard to imagine that this just disappears. So now with that knowledge in our heads, uh, the, the potential that this is just going to remain for quite some time, perhaps indefinitely, let's just say that that's all, like you said, is conjecture on your end, but let's say that that's accurate. Uh, the, the person who's you know, living their life, they're just going about their day, they're you know, going to university right now, or they, you know, and I know UBC, I just heard, put a plan in place where they can do all of their courses and they can finish all of their courses via distance. I'm not sure what the plan actually looks like, but I know they're working to that end. You've got major uh, sporting events shutting down. You've got things like the, the you know, World Hockey Championship shutting down. You've got, um, it, there's a huge tennis tournament in uh, just outside of Palm Springs. Yeah, Indian Wells. Yeah, Indian Wells. Just They just said we're not doing it. Um, like I said, you've got different uh, regions where they're closing down big gatherings of uh, more than a certain amount of people. And, and you're just going about your day, and now you're finding out, actually, this might just be something we live with for a while. What is the concern for the person who is otherwise healthy and they're just going about their life? Uh, at what point are you going to see massive disruptions on a global level to life? Or is that something where you just go about your life, you wash your hands, you do your thing, and if you get sick, you maybe go get tested to see if you have it? Like, like wh where are we at in terms of a culture on that? The culture is shifting. If you are a middle-aged person with no comorbidities and no risk factors, you'll probably be okay. Um, the estimates right now is that 80% of people that get infected will have mild illness. 15% of people will access healthcare, and the remaining five people will be critical. With, a, with I think, somewhere around 2% being fatal, yes? Yeah, the, so the, the case fatality ratio is, is it's controversial at best. So the World Health Organization endorses a 3.4 uh, case fatality ratio, which essentially means for every 100 cases, you would expect between three and four people to die. But it's, it's wildly variable depending on the region that you're in, underlying comorbidity, comorbidities, access to uh, good health care, all of those things go into play. So some countries are reporting about 1% 
case fatality ratio. Others are reporting wildly higher case fatality ratios. And the World Health Organization has come out and said it's about 3.4 on average. Yeah, so you you got this idea that if you live in a safe country with great health care and you have access to great health care and you're otherwise um, reasonably healthy, there's a 99% chance that you're going to be just fine. You might be sick for a little bit, but you'll get over it. If you're a person who's living in a care home or something like that and you're, you're nearing the end of life and sort of the next thing you get is going to perhaps be, so if you get the flu, if you get a common cold, if you get whatever, you get strep throat, that, that could be the end for you in that sense. And so this is what is the last thing in that person's life. Is that, that yeah, kind of well, way to read that? Yeah, just about. Okay. So if, um, if I may, there are, there's a lot of discussion comparing coronavirus to influenza, something that you just brought up now. Um, you know, which is worse? Are we overreacting? How many deaths, et cetera? Um, but what's being missed by many people is the effect that these two viruses have on our healthcare system if they're occurring at the same time. Anyone who's visited a hospital with flu-like symptoms knows the story. Long wait times and limited resources. Now imagine that the demand for those resources double because of two completely different viruses. The system could be strained beyond capacity. Just about every public health initiative right now is aligning to delay the inevitable first wave of coronavirus until after the influenza season has begun to end. Usually this happens around April. And we're talking here social distancing, screening, public health notices, and quarantine, shutting down venues with, of, of mass gatherings over 1,000 people. All of this is to free up the healthcare resources necessary to keep symptomatic people alive. Okay, so that, that, I mean, that helps in terms of understanding why some of these measures are being put in place. It's because the, rec, you know, the recognition is this is just putting a massive drain on an otherwise already strained system. Exactly. The hospitals only have so many respirators. They only have so many beds. They, they only have so much capacity. If you get the influenza spike happening at the same time as the coronavirus spike, uh, we're going to be in big trouble. In my opinion, that's where you see the wild spikes in case fatality ratio, is people unable to access health care. We as Canadians take for granted that we can just go to a hospital mm-hmm. and receive care. But what if that care just isn't there? Wow. So, Jay, I've read a few things on this, clearly not as much as Brett has. Uh, I shouldn't touch my face and I need to wash my hands. Is that right? Is that, is that sort of the preventative measures I can do on my part or, or what, what, what can I do? Yeah, well, first we have to understand how the disease spreads between people. So the virus that causes COVID-19 spreads in a similar fashion as other respiratory illnesses. It can be generally transmitted two ways. First, when people cough or sneeze, they release tiny droplets of fluid into the surrounding area. These droplets contain the virus and can potentially expose people and surfaces within two meters. Second, you can unknowingly contaminate your hands and then touch your eyes, nose, or mouth. This is sufficient to cause infection. So to get to answer your question, to protect yourself and those around you, wash your hands as often as possible for at least 20 seconds each time. If your hands are not soiled, you can use hand sanitizer that contains 70% alcohol. Avoid touching your eyes, nose, or mouth, and cough into your sleeve and not your hands. Easier said than done, try to avoid close contact with people, Mm -hmm. especially those demonstrating symptoms, and be cautious of common surfaces such as doorknobs, credit card machines, and elevator buttons. Most of all, stay home if you're sick. You just don't have to go to that craft brewery. (laughs) I think that's so helpful, Jay, and you don't... I mean, we just did an announcement on Sunday about this at our church. I'm really happy to hear that. Yeah, and, and we just tried to address it in a couple of ways. One, we, we came at it from a practical sense and said, look, um, yeah, you know, wash your hands, don't touch your face. If you're coughing, try to suppress your cough with something. 
you know, obviously cough into your, your the pit of your arm or something like that. And, uh, you know, for janitorial stuff, like we've, we've upped our sanitization game in terms of doorknobs and, and handles that are touched. Our, our children's ministry uh, sanitizes everything that a kid would touch every week anyways. And so we're going to continue on with that protocol. And so we're just trying to do the best we can. We put uh, hand sanitizer at the cafe stations, the people who are serving communion, all of that goes on. There's people who are asking, should we not be celebrating communion on a week to week basis? And we said, look, nobody, you don't have to. Um, you don't have to take communion in this way. And so we can discuss what that looks like in the future. People in general don't seem to be too concerned. They're taking those practical steps. And then there's some people I know, and, and certainly even within our network and, and family of churches out here, there's churches that have already stopped gathering over this. Hmm. And largely they're ethnic churches that have a, a certain sense of, of responsibility and uh, a certain sense of concern. And we have a multicultural church, and I'm sure that there are some people who are staying away um, at the moment. And, uh, and for anybody who feels like that's something necessary to do, I, I don't have a problem with that at all. So we tried to address some of the practical side. And then what we try to do is drive into the heart conversation about really like, why are we responding the way we are? And I think some of it comes down to what you just said, Jay. You don't have to go out. Um, but you also don't want to be ruled by fear. And so are there some practical ways that you can you know, be wise and have preventative things in place? Um, I mean, what would you speak to that in terms of, uh, I know you're a follower of Jesus yourself, and so, you know, what would you speak to that in terms of gathering with people, shaking hands, uh, being together for the celebration of communion? What are the things that you would see put in place in that way? Well, I would love to see more church leaders, as with everyone, be more proactive about public health measures in general. Uh, just in the past few weeks, um, anecdotally, I've heard of churches even rebuking individuals who are promoting uh, safe practices or, or culture shifts, as they're called in, in the church. I've heard of churches endorsing the, uh, the holy elbow bump as a friendly way to acknowledge one another without risk of infecting each other. In general, I believe the underlying sentiment of reservation uh, is that if the pastor acknowledges that there's a problem, it, w- it will cause mass panic or at least cast doubt on even something like the existence of a sovereign God shepherding his people. Uh, Conversely, I I believe that demonstrating a measured and intentional response and becoming a trusted source of information from the start actually mitigates panic, makes people feel safer, and drives engagement physically, emotionally, and spiritually. Jay, I really appreciate that response. Uh, As a pastor, uh, and also from you as a follower of Jesus, who is also working in this uh, field of epidemiology. What does your day-to-day look like in the middle of all this craziness? Well, the organization that I'm in uh, has a wide response for this particular outbreak, and my specific role lately has been filling uh, the positions that have been vacated by those first responders. So there's a great emphasis right now on on physicians and nurses um, and uh, uh, those qualified professions uh, to to be the first responders in this area. So unfortunately, my role has been much more administrative, but I'm happy to contribute what I can. Right. So you're not like writing on the window with like markers late at night trying to like crack the code. That's that, that's a false narrative. Just drinking Red Bulls until you find the vaccine. That's not your job? Uh, no, that's that's just parenting. <laughs> right. right. <laughs> just sleepless nights. This has nothing to do with what's going on in the world. It's just because you have kids. Yeah, not at all. I'm just thankful that I get to go home and see them at the end of the day. Yeah, that's great, Jay. Uh, this is super helpful. Are there things that, I mean, you know, you got a couple, you're sitting with a couple of guys who are trained in theology. Uh, are there things that we're not thinking about right now that you would say, um, man, if I was you, I'd, I'd be considering this and this and this? Well, I have some thoughts. Um, like, I'm, I'm no theologian, but I'm immediately reminded of Romans 8, 
um, life through the spirit. I see the majority of the scripture as Paul describing the war between the flesh and the spirit, illustrating that believing in the spirit brings us to life, but also worldly suffering. For most of us, I'd say our struggle to live out Christianity doesn't look pretty. Our relationship to God produces fruit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control, but also involves characteristics that the world doesn't understand well. Forgiveness, selfish ambition, selfless ambition, sacrificial giving, humility, joy in the midst of grief. At times, and for many in the world, these fruits invite open persecution and even death. Uh, personally, for me, it's a constant struggle to untie my worldly achievements from my spiritual state. If I'm getting promotions, praise, or recognition, I, I tend to feel spiritually healthy. And when I'm physically down or emotionally discouraged, I feel spiritually discouraged. Hmm. In truth, life in the Spirit isn't dependent on our worldly circumstance. And all the pain and suffering creation truly groans for the children of God to be revealed. And we need not give in to fear, not even when faced with a deadly outbreak like this. Sure, as the old saying goes, even the most faithful Christian looks both way before crossing the street. Take precautions. Wash your hands, elbow bump, use hand sanitizer. That being said, in your prayers, seek the Spirit's leading in your life. What he would have you do during this difficult time? Perhaps your neighbors with an elderly couple. If you're a middle-aged person with no risk factors, you may consider purchasing groceries on their behalf to limit their exposure. Some of us may know people in quarantine, perhaps returning from a cruise or travel. Set an alarm and call them once a day. Be intentional, build relationships, make a difference. Even if you do get infected or people you know and love get infected, take a moment and remind yourself that the present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. And take comfort in knowing that our future as Christians is secure and that God uses all things in his glory, not ours. That's pretty good stuff for a guy who just opened up with, I'm not much of a theologian, Jay. I think that's the exact Christian response that we're called to have, and uh, very thankful that you come on the podcast and shed some light uh, on the practicalities of it from an epidemiologist's perspective, but also from the perspective of somebody who wants to love and serve their neighbors in Jesus' name. And so thankful for you coming on and uh, spending a bit of time with us like this. Thanks, Jay. Thank you very much for the invitation. It's been a pleasure to be a part of this, and uh, all the best in the podcast. Ah, thanks so much, man. T talk to you soon. Bye. Bye. Well, that was a great conversation with Jay. Really appreciated the insight that he could share uh, from his field of study. Brett, as you think about how that conversation went and some of the insights Jay shared with us, uh, what stands out for, uh, for you in this? Yeah, I think in some senses, maybe there's a lot more going on than we know. Right. That stands out to me. It's one, one takeaway from the conversation. Uh, Which we didn't need to listen to an epidemiologist <laughs> to discover. No, right. no, like, yeah, oh, shockingly, I didn't understand things that people yeah, who yeah. uh, work in that field understand. No, but at the same time, I think that the conversation, the way that he concludes by talking about Romans chapter 8 um, and serving and loving your neighbor, like, goodness, isn't that, that's what we need to hear. Absolutely, yeah. That's what we need to hear in the midst of all of this. Um, you know, the the conversation around Contagion, the movie, and, mm -hmm. you know, being informed on, on what epidemiology really looks like mm -hmm. and the study of epidemics from that level. Uh, there's lots of conversation going on in our media, and I think a lot of it is alarmist. I think a lot of it is clickbait. I think a lot of it is conspiracy theories that are getting a lot of ads sold on websites and news media. And it's just nice to talk to somebody who actually understands the severity of this, the seriousness that we need to take uh, into account, but also who has like a really grounded understanding of the fact that we serve a sovereign God. So that, that was my take. Yeah, I don't know, what about you? And I think we're going to find this as well, too, with uh, our registered nurse guest who we're talking with next. It's just always refreshing, especially in a world where 
scientists and, and those who have PhDs and who are trained academically, like, you know, really well uh, occupy sort of a priestly class in our age yeah. where like they can sort of say no wrong and they kind of can speak authoritatively. It's always so refreshing to hear uh, brothers and sisters in Christ who have done all this work and yet still submit themselves to the scriptures, yeah. still submit themselves to the will of our sovereign loving yeah. father. And so it's just a good reminder because I think sometimes I'm guilty of also deferring to the priestly class right. and forgetting what I have in Christ or the truth I have in so Christ. When you call them the priestly class, what do you mean by that? I, I just mean that in our society, I think certain people, whether they be doctors or uh, academics or whoever they might be, you know, you, mm-hmm. you, you get what I'm referring to. Yeah. They have a certain authoritative voice yeah. that when they speak, well, so-and-so said this, right. and so it must be true. Uh, oftentimes speaking on things, that's like when athletes speak on like, you know, political issues, right. which, which they're more than welcome to do, sure. but, but clearly have no sort of formal training in political science right. or necessarily on the issue at, at hand. But right. they occupy this priestly class. They have a platform. They have a platform. Yeah. Exactly. And so I think it's always good to see uh, that platform subsumed or under yeah. uh, the Lordship of Christ. Yeah, I think it's when, yeah, when you talk about a priestly class, you're talking about mediators of truth in our age. Yeah, absolutely. And I think when we do speak to people who know what they're talking about, but who also submit all of their knowledge and learning yeah. to the Lordship of Christ. It is a very encouraging thing. And so I think yeah. you're going to enjoy this conversation with Laura. And uh, yeah, let's let's listen to that. Uh, hey, want to uh, welcome my friend Laura to the podcast. Uh, Laura is a registered nurse, a fellow follower of Jesus, and has an extensive medical background and uh, really excited to be able to talk to her about the issue of coronavirus, COVID-19, the response that we might have as a church, and the way that people should be thinking about this. Laura, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. I'm looking forward to this. Why don't you uh, just tell us a little bit of your background, what you do, and, uh, you know, why we should, you know, engage you in this conversation. Help us understand who you are. Okay. Um, Well, I've been a registered nurse for dare I say, over 20 years now. Um, and uh, my the bulk of my clinical career was in ICU. I actually worked in the intensive care union, unit during the H1N1 pandemic. Um, and now I work in an advanced role in a department called professional practice, where we try to make sure people are doing the best work they can possibly do. Fantastic. And so you're thinking on this level, you're implementing practices and building, uh, you know, I don't know, different requirements that are going into it to make sure that there's excellence in the medical care profession within hospitals and clinics and things. Yeah, certainly upholding um, the recommendations of our population and public health professionals and things that are coming from the ministry and making sure people are just abiding by that kind of stuff. That's great. I, I mean, I've known you for, gosh, almost nine, probably nine years now. And wow. um, yeah, that's how long we've been in Vancouver now. And, uh, and you know, I've always appreciated our conversations as it pertains to the faith, but also your expertise in this area. And so definitely wanted to have a conversation with you on this and just get your thoughts on how we can approach some of these things. I know Jake's got some questions that he wants to ask, and I certainly do as well. Uh, I'll maybe let him have the first crack at it. Laura, first off, yeah, thanks for, for coming on. I want to ask you about masks. Now, we, we've all heard uh, people like buying out Amazon masks, uh, stockpiling mm-hmm. them. Uh, can you give us what? What's the deal with masks? <laughs> <laughs> what's the 
deal with masks. Yeah. I'm really glad you didn't ask me about toilet paper. Yeah. That is just crazy. We, we can go um, there if you'd l- like. L- let me tell you, Laura, <laughs> I addressed this on Sunday to our congregation at Christ City, South Vancouver, and I said, you do yeah. not ever, in, in the course of history, you will never need six months worth of toilet paper at one time. Never, ever. You no. will not. Uh, so, okay, with masks. So, um, as most people have probably heard on the news, there's lots of different kinds of masks out there. Um, there are very few reasons as to why someone in the general public would require a mask. Um, sometimes people will wear a mask to protect others from themselves. So um, if you are actively sick with uh, a lot of different things, wearing a mask may actually keep you from getting others sick. But um, most of the surgical masks that are out there will not protect you from getting sick yourself. So surgeons, um, OR nurses, they wear those masks in order to keep um, things from entering into the operating field. Um, so my, I would say listen to what the public health people are saying. They're telling you not to buy the masks. And every mask that gets purchased by someone who doesn't work in healthcare means that there's one less mask for a healthcare provider who may actually need it. Um, so uh, that would be my recommendation. Um, there's very, very few reasons as to why someone in the general public would need one. Yeah, Laura, I was at the gym and uh, and there was a guy in a mask, and I also saw somebody wearing gloves. Uh, something like gloves, like surgical gloves. I, I don't know what kind of gloves they were, man. They were just <laughs> gloves that somebody was wearing. I didn't go close enough to say. I thought if they're wearing gloves, the last thing they want me to do is walk over and go, "Excuse me, what kind of gloves are yeah, you?" But wearing? They weren't like workout gloves, is what you're saying. No, they no, they yeah, yeah, yeah. They were not workout gloves right. for sure. Okay. They they were like obscure. They definitely stood out as gloves that were being worn to protect from touching something. Uh, is something like right. that going to help in this, uh, in, you know, with this coronavirus thing? No. Um, I, again, I mean, so even, so this is bringing a healthcare context to gloves. Even if you wear, when you, well, we wear gloves for a lot of things. But when you wear gloves, you're still required to wash your hands after removing said mm. gloves. So, um Gloves are only a certain level of protection, um, and I really don't think most people think about all of the things they touch that would require them to wash wash their hands throughout a day. So um, I think we just need to start making hand washing a much more habitual thing in our lives, um, and that will protect us. And also making sure that the skin on your hands is in good condition, because if there's lots of cracks and crevices, bacteria and different things like to grow there, um, so washing your hands regularly is going to help a lot and washing means actually washing, not just sticking your hands under the tap and, and pulling them out or running so, the water. So your guests think you're washing your hands, but you're not actually washing oh your gosh, hands. I can't believe we work. <laughs> Jake and I work in the same space. I just realized he's not a hand washer. That's amazing. I got a bottle oh. of hand sanitizer at my desk. Well, and hand sanitizer does a certain amount of good, but actually washing your hands with soap and water. Um, is actually more effective, and you should wash your hands for at least 20 seconds. Um, so there's lots of different things that you can do. I learned today that if you recite the um, introductory paragraph to Star Trek, that will get you through <laughs> hand washing. All the nerds um, are going to survive this. Yes, exactly. <laughs> um, happy birthday, twinkle, twinkle, if you want some easy things to remember. Like Psalm 23 no. or, or yeah. like, you know, we're just trying to Jesus this up a little bit. Like the uh, <laughs> yep. the prologue of John's gospel, John chapter 1, verses 1 to 18, if you want to, you know, in the there beginning. Nicene Creed. In the beginning was the word. You, yeah, okay. 
sing your favorite worship chorus a sure. couple of times. Well, not not all of us can sing, so you know, don't uh, don't be narrow with your view, right? Some of okay, us can't I'm, sing. So. I apologize. Yes, thank okay. you. I was, I'm going to get triggered. <laughs> uh, Hand sanitizer uh, is like, you know, very valuable these days because it's all gone out of all the stores everywhere yeah. and then they get a stock and then it's gone. And you're saying it's helpful for some things. What's it helpful for? What's it not helpful for? Well, it's helpful if you don't have access to hand washing, like right at that moment. So like you're out in public, you've decided to go to a restaurant. I mean, hopefully they have a bathroom with soap and water. But let's say you're, let's say you got something from a, um, a food truck and you want to eat with your hands. Hand sanitizer is a great option for that kind of thing. Okay, perfect. Laura, I, I heard a story, and Brett heard a story anecdotally from a source that we cannot uh, confirm nor deny nor out on the podcast. But it's true. But it's true, 100% true, okay. of a guy who walked into a hospital dressed in scrubs. Brett, am I right on this? That's right. And he and he stole masks from a hospital, like undercover uh, as a quote-unquote doctor. Like, and he took mm. them. And, exact, that's crazy, right? It is crazy. Yeah. It does happen, though. The crazy things happen in healthcare. Oh, man. And I, so it's not so entirely surprising to me, sadly. There's a, a nurse who's part of the body of Christ City, and uh, I was having a conversation with her, and she said that the N95 masks, which are globally sold out, um, and, and from what I understand, anyway, what she told me, are the mm-hmm. ones that the, the medical professionals will wear in, in this kind of um, instance to protect themselves. And because they're mm-hmm. on the front lines of this battle and they're the ones who are trained to deal with it, they need those masks. But those masks need to be custom fit or not custom fit, but you need to know how to wear them and what to do with them or else they Correct. really are completely useless. And even those masks, from what I understand, which are quite helpful uh, for communicable disease in this way, they're not going to do most people any good. No, because they haven't been fit tested. Yeah, wow. thank, yeah, yeah. So it's crazy. It's a, a lot of it. I I think what we're trying to get at here is a lot of it is is coming down to fear and the desire to just do something. Yes. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. Um, when and it, the one thing that we all can do is wash our hands. Okay, so just like my mom told me when I was three. Mm-hmm. <laughs> wash your hands. Perfect. So it turns exactly. out my mom has been right for mom all these years. Best. My mom knows. Yeah, uh, the um, moms know. The you know, when we're talking about this as followers of Jesus, I mean, there's obviously lots of views of, of what we believe about life and how we would approach this. And, and you know, we're getting into this uh, in this episode as well. But, you know, for you, are you going to gather with the church on Sunday? I definitely will be, yes. Yeah. Gathering with the church on Sunday, yep. So knowing all that you know, which is a heck of a lot more than Jake and I know, there's not, you don't really have any fear about that? I do not have fear about that. I mean, I think there's reasonable things to take, um, you know, to take precautions by, probably won't shake everybody's hand. Yeah. Um, I probably will do some a little bit of extra hand washing on Sunday morning just to um, be aware of that. Um, but I'm not, I'm certainly not fearful of the fact that there could very well be someone in the audience or in the congregation with um, COVID-19 and um, I may get it. I may not get it. And that is not necessarily for me to know at this point. Yeah. Um you know, there's lots of conversation in the church world uh, around a couple of things. One is, um, you know, at what point do we say we shouldn't gather? And then the other point would be, uh, should we be serving and celebrating communion as we do on a weekly basis? I know in, in the church you're part of and in our church. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I think I think it's really important that we, um, we look at some of the evidence that we're seeing. So, I mean, I know Italy was just shut down yesterday. Um, they do have... Um, 
they've had like an out of control transmission of the disease across um, like within their communities. We have, we have not yet seen that. Um, I think the church needs to be mindful of what the healthcare professionals are saying. Um, but, and we're not in that space right now. And I think it's more important for the body of Christ to gather, to um, help those who are anxious, to, to help those who are maybe um, fearful, to speak truth, to um, gather as a community, to encourage. I think we have an opportunity to set an example of what it, of how we can respond when um, difficult things happen in the world and in, in culture around us. Um, and I also just think that, you know, we do have ways of, um, of changing some of our practices in order to take these things into consideration. But honoring the body and the blood of Christ um, continues to be a paramount thing that we need to do. And so if we can find a way to do that that's safe, then I, I am 100% on board. I will be taking communion on Sunday for sure. Awesome. Thanks so much for sharing that, Lord. That's really, really uh, great to hear that from you as someone who Brett said knows a heck of a lot more uh, than here, than you know, than, than than we do about this. Uh, I wanted to ask because it sounds like that this is affecting primarily like a pretty vulnerable sector of the population, uh, mm-hmm. primarily the elderly. Am I right in saying that, Laura? Yeah. So I mean, the one death we've had in BC was an elderly man over eighty, and that seems to be um, pretty typical around the world from the statistics yeah. we're seeing. Yeah. Yeah. So how can we as a church? Uh, and we'll talk about this later on in our podcast, but how is, can we as a church go about and be like the hands and feet of Jesus and serve uh, both the vulnerable and just people who are shut in for like two weeks or whatever it is? How, how can we serve in practical ways? What do you foresee the church's role being in, in extending mercy in this situation? Yeah, I mean, I think this is no different than when we have vulnerable people who are around us um, when we aren't experiencing what is yet to be called a pandemic Um like, I think we need to be paying attention to those people who need our help. That is our role as a, as a church, to care for those who are in need. Um, we are always called to love our neighbor, and so we are called to do that even, I would say, even more visibly um, in these times to show that we, are, we, need to call, we need to love and serve our neighbor. And that maybe mean that we end up exposed to the disease, um, but... Uh, I would say loving and caring for our neighbor and being showing that we love each other, as Jesus said, that that would show that we love him. Um, then we need to do those things in order to, in order to show that. Mm-hmm. And I also think we need to be, you know, asking those people, tell us, you know, tell us what you need, um, delivering groceries, delivering toilet paper, if it's toilet available. Paper. That's right. Get, <laughs> get some TP in there. Um and, you know, making sure we're meeting those practical needs, but also their spiritual needs, because isolation is really terrible for people mm. emotionally and spiritually. So, yeah. you know, taking the time to pray with them, um, to talk with them and uh, and meet those needs as well. You know, as a nurse, Laura, maybe just speak to if somebody is feeling sick, and I recognize mm. we're not giving medical advice on our podcast here, but just in nope. general... Um, somebody's got a cough, somebody's got a sore throat, somebody's worried, and they're thinking, I need to head in to the hospital. Mm-hmm. I know that the hospitals in certain areas have been overrun with mm-hmm. people who are really worried that they might have this. Mm-hmm. Um, can you just help us understand what the public health world would recommend for somebody who's maybe um, fearful that they maybe uh, have contracted COVID-19 somehow? 
Well, I mean, the uh, big recommendations right now are to call 811, call the nursing helpline. They will walk you through a series of questions that will help you determine whether or not um, this is a possibility. Um, and then they will uh, give you advice as to what to do. I know I know. I was watching um, the news this morning before I headed to work, and uh, they were recommending that if you were going to seek medical attention, that you let those people know in advance if you did feel like you had um, the signs and symptoms of this disease so that they could prepare for your arrival. Okay. Um, yeah, so, I mean, every single day Dr. Bonnie Henry is doing um, uh, media briefings, and so those are the things they're repeatedly saying. Okay. And, sorry, the, can you name the doctor again that you just said, Laura? Dr. Bonnie Henry. She's the um, chief public health. And, you know, that's actually her- good. Sorry, go ahead. No, I think I think that's her title, Chief Public Health Officer. Yeah. But yeah, yeah, I watched something on the news the other day where she was giving um, an update or something, and and she was quite emotional uh, on the mm-hmm. update, and she said something like, "I haven't slept like in like you know like for extended period of time," and it just reminded me uh, we're we're told to pray for our leaders mm-hmm. and pray mm-hmm. for those the Lord has entrusted o- over us, and may- maybe that's a good call for us as a church to be to be praying for this doctor and all those who are on the forefront yeah. of of combating COVID nineteen. Yeah, I mean, I think it's, you know, I've had a lot of conversations with people in multiple different roles throughout um, some of the hospitals and different settings, and people are tired. It's it's a lot of work. I mean, we do pandemic planning every year in anticipation of influenza, but, um, you know, this is obviously an unexpected thing, and we still have to meet the needs of um, all of the other healthcare requirements that are happening, and so... Yeah, pray for the physicians. Pray for the um, healthcare staff, and uh, and also, I the media briefing today revealed that two of the healthcare workers from the care home are have now have contracted it. So, you know, pray wow. for them as well. Yeah. So. Well, well, Laura, thank you so much for taking time and uh, coming on, just instructing us a bit and giving us a, a bit of a, a clear-headed answer to some of these questions that I know a lot of people are asking, and uh, certainly mm-hmm. we're getting asked this as church leaders. Uh, you must have your uh, text message inbox inundated with all the friends and, and people in your community who are wondering what you think about this, and just really thankful that you take time and help us out in this way. My pleasure. I hope it, I hope it has been helpful. Yeah, no, it definitely has. Thanks, Laura. Thanks, Laura. You're welcome. Well, that was a fantastic conversation uh, with Laura, just getting some real practical insight from her perspective as someone on the ground, worked working as a nurse. Uh, Brett, coming out of that conversation, w- w- what did you glean? I, I mean, I've known her for a long time. Exactly what I thought she would she would have to say. Super wise, uh, grounded, loves Jesus, loves the church, understands her job, and knows her stuff, and uh, confident to continue on gathering together with the Church of Jesus. I mean, it's a... Uh, yeah very encouraging to just hear people who know what they're talking about and are grounded in the life of the church and value that um, as we live it out and, and care about how the church responds to these things. It's very helpful. Yeah. And, and you feel bad now about those boxes of masks in your house. Yeah, 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 exactly. The um, I'm the guy who dressed up in the scrubs and went into the hospital right. and stole When we said our friend. Yeah, exactly. We know on good yeah, authority. Yeah. yeah, no. I'm asking for a guy. I don't have a mask. I can tell you that right now. I don't have any masks. I've not stockpiled food. I have exactly as much toilet paper as my family of one male and one uh, I want to woman confess, with three daughters. I don't. We don't have any. We have two big ones from Costco. Yeah, but we were out. But you were out. We were out. It was just time That's, to buy we more just get two normally. Right. Yeah. It's just how you do. Exactly. It's how you do. 
I would love to transition now, if we can, if that's a bit not a bit too abrupt. It's a great segue. Uh, into uh, sort of the historical perspective on this. And so, yeah. Brett, in our introduction, you talked a bit about how Christians have responded to plagues uh, in the, the, the previous centuries. Uh, can you elaborate with us and maybe show us how we can glean from our brothers and sisters who have gone before us in this particular very niche respect? Yeah, so, I mean, we're not dispensing medical dev- medical advice. We know that. You and I are not medical professionals. It's fantastic to As talk to. As this podcast has made very clear. Yes, we're, it's good to talk to people who know what they're talking about. Here's where I do enter into a little bit more of, uh, I would say, our wheelhouse, my wheelhouse, our wheelhouse, knowing what's happened historically and how Christians can respond and how we can think about this theologically. And uh, one of the examples that stands out to me as the, one of the, it's, it's hard to call this a bright shining star in church history because it was a horrible era. It was just a really ugly era of history. But there's something called the Plague of Cyprian. Um, it's called the Plague of Cyprian because Cyprian was a bishop who wrote down some of the things that were going on while this plague was just ravaging the Roman Empire, and while there were people just dying all over the place. Um, there's a, a guy named Kyle Harper who wrote a really interesting paper on this called Pandemics and Passages to Late Antiquity. It talks about rethinking the plague of uh, 249 to 270 A.D., and, and really, he was engaging with Cyprian and like in the Journal of Roman Archaeology. And so if I wasn't outed as a bit of a historical nerd already, there it is for you. Um, he, he goes on in his paper and he talks about the, the reality that, well, he just says, um, for all intents and purposes, this plague has actually been forgotten. It was almost like it got wiped away from the the memory of of history. And it was in the middle of the third century, and it really did ravage the, the Roman Empire, but they the Bishop of Carthage, his name was Cyprian, was the guy who wrote some of the best uh, testimony of the event itself. And he actually gave, there's archaeological evidence of this happening, this major disease outbreak that happens, but in terms of the surviving literature, um, this is one of the best uh, aspects of the surviving literature and one of the best sources that we can go to. And so he engages Cyprian, the Bishop of Carthage, and um, we're going to look at, we'll talk about um, Dionysius, who was a Bishop of Alexandria, and they wrote some letters back and forth. And we'll just get an idea, because of the nature of the pandemic that happened in the middle of the third century, Cyprian actually wrote this. He said, this trial that now, <laughs> you, I don't know if you've ever heard this before. If you, have, if you have a queasy stomach, this is for you. A trigger warning. This trial that now the bowels relaxed into a constant flux, discharged the bodily strength. That a fire originated in the marrow, ferments into wounds of the feces that the intestines are shaken with a continual vomiting, that the eyes are on fire with the injected blood, that in some cases, this is a bishop talking, this is church language, that in some cases the feet or parts of the limbs are taken off by the contagion of diseased putrefaction, that from the weakness arising by the maiming and loss of body, either the gait is enfeebled, meaning you couldn't walk anymore, or hearing is obstructed, meaning you lost your ability to hear or your sight darkened and you went blind get another guy Dionysius who I, I mentioned earlier he said this immense city no longer contains as big a number of inhabitants from infant children to those of extreme age as it used to support of those described as uh, old men as for those from 40 to 70 40 years old to 70 year old, old they were then so much more numerous that their total is not reached now though we have counted and registered as entitled to the public food ration all from 14 to 80 
and those who look the youngest are now reckoned as equal in age to the oldest of our earlier generation. So his point was, and this is what some people have kind of taken out of this, and this is what Kyle Harper in his paper brings out of it. He says, Dionysius implies that a 62% drop of the population during the time of this plague was what happened. Now, some of that was to flight. People just left. But a lot of that was to mortality. 62% of the population was gone from the city. Wow. Just gone from the region. Um, I mean, that's the plague he was describing. And and there's there are epidemiologists like Jay who have studied the history on this, and there's historians that look at it, and they try and figure out what this pandemic actually was. That's not really the the point of our conversation. We don't really need to figure out what they were going through, and was this measles, was this mumps, was this rubella, was this something, mm-hmm. you know, whatever. I don't know any of that. Mm-hmm. What I know is that there was a massive difference between the way the Church of Jesus Christ responded to this crisis and compared to the pagan world around them. Massive difference. Yeah. And so can you maybe draw out for us how the Christian response led not only to like a, like a good witness in the world, yeah. but in some respects to like a growth actually in the flourishing of the Christian church? Like, like h- how does that happen? So not only is a church like, you know, stable, if we can use that language of like, you know, we're, we're trusting in the Lord in this, but you actually begin to see people in increasing ways begin to encounter and know Jesus through these loving efforts. Can you talk about that a bit? Yeah, so uh, there's a, another resource called the Oxford Textbook of Spirituality and Healthcare. Own it, obviously. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Probably. Just pull it off your shelf if you want to look at it. Yeah. I can, tell you what page, I can tell you what page number we're on. It, it, they said in there that during the general, in, in general population, during times of plague, the sick and dying were abandoned and corpses were often left unburied in order to prevent the, sp- the spread of contagion. So they just left them. They just took dead people and just threw them in a pile. Don't touch them. We know that, you know, they don't understand bacteria. They don't understand germs or viruses, but they did understand that there was something happening where it was passed by touch. And then Dionysius, the guy who was a leader in the church, he he gets kind of elaborates on the, the reaction of the people around them, the popular reaction to the plague in this classical world. And he says, at the first onset of the disease, they pushed the sufferers away and fled from their dearest, meaning their families and friends throwing them into the roads before they were dead and treating unburied corpses as dirt, hoping thereby to avert the spread and contagion of the fatal disease. But do what they might, they found it difficult to escape. So that was the pagan response, the people who were not followers of Jesus. They just laid sick people out and let them die because they were scared that they were going to get it. Okay, You said something happened in the population of the church that was different. Here's what they believe. And Rodney Stark has written on this. Um, great resource on on it. It's uh, The Rise of Christianity by Rodney Stark. There's a chapter in there. Uh, I think it's called Epidemics. What is it called? Epidemics, Networks, and Conversion. Yeah. So, so there's Very this idea chapter. that that was the way the pagan world was dealing with it. Mm-hmm. But the Christian world was looking at it and saying, hey, hang on a second. We're called to love people. Mm-hmm. We're, period. Yeah. So like they're sick and dying and that might make us sick, but we're called to love them. And what they did was they gave the sick like glasses of water. They tended to their wounds. They made sure that if they were hungry, they got fed. They took basic care and did basic nursing things and, and you know, sat them up and helped them get outside and go, for, you know, get some fresh air and get a glass of water. And when they were just laying there, like just tried to nurse them unto their death, what ended up happening was most of the people that they were nursing, they didn't die. Hmm. So the Christians weren't discarding their dearest, as Dionysius says the pagans were doing. They were just... just running away from their friends and family. 
Heading to their hillside villas. That's right. Leaving the city because they knew that's where the plague was. They weren't doing that. Christians didn't do that. They stayed around and nursed other people. What happened is they nursed them back to health. And so disproportionately, the pagan population perished and the Christian population survived. Then you've got this other stuff that goes on, and there's there's a a, a wonderful quote um, where they talk about like even these impious. Uh, this is um, Julian, Emperor Julian said this: um, the impious Galileans support not only their own poor but ours as well. Everyone can see that our people lack aid from us. Mm-hmm. And his point was these impious Galileans was this like slanderous way to talk about Christians. He was saying they don't only support their own poor but but our poor as well. And so Christians were, were free in this sense of their, their lives and their hope was not attached to this life. And so they were free to care for anybody. And they cared for their own. But then when mm. the other people got abandoned, they were like, oh, shoot, they just mm. abandoned this other, this family just left their kids here because they mm. were sick. We'll nurse them back to health. Yeah. Or these other people abandoned, everyone in their household left except for the three sick people. Well, we'll take care of them too. And what you see is those people end up being converted to Christianity because of the hope and faith that Christians had, while at the same time, the the Christians are caring for their own and nursing them to health. And so what happens is when you see a 62% drop of the population of that city, as uh, you know, um, Kyle Harper would say, you have going on there a disproportionate increase of Christians in the population. Yeah, and Rodney Stark's a historian, and he traces the the statistics on he's this. Sociologist, yeah. So yeah. he's looking at it from a sociologist perspective, saying the growth of the church in the middle of the third century in the plague of Cyprian, the church wouldn't have grown unless this plague came. Mm. The church had a disproportionate share of the population that lived, and began to grow and flourish in unique ways because of the way the Christians cared for people in the midst of an outbreak. Which is it's fairly profound to consider, especially considering uh, that the ethic, if we can just you know use the Costco toilet paper, ha, ha, ha example for a second, right. is when these things come, look out for me, and after me is my family, and after my family is my friends. But beyond that, like, like that that's about as far yeah. as our love extends. I, I, I'm reminded, even as we went through our Galatians series, I think it's Paul. Well, if, yeah, it's Paul. Uh, he, he writes at the end, you know, to do good to all. And then he says, especially to those who are of the household of faith. Yeah. And you have this 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 two pronged uh, offensive of love. Yeah. All people, and especially to those of the household of faith, and that's exactly what you just described. Yeah. Uh, uh, their bread. Yeah. And what it comes down to, and so so you can hear all the historical data on this. You can look at uh, all the realities of what happened, the sociological, historical, archaeological evidence, the literature. You know, there's like 28 sources that cite this thing going on with the church and the way that they talk about it in this era. And the reality that Christians cared for the sick and dying when nobody else did. And you can look at all of that data. It's fine. Why did they do that? Yeah. That's the question. Yeah. Why did the Christians stay, hang out with the sick and dying, when they knew that contact with the sick and dying might mean the end of their life? This is the question that needs to drive the way we think about it. I think there's really a twofold reason. One, the ministry of mercy. Ministry of mercy is, um, we've been going through the Sermon on the Mount. Mm -hmm. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. The mercy, I mean, it has to do with forgiveness and lots of other things too, but there's just an element of it where it's like, you just care. Mm -hmm. You're merciful towards those who need mercy. Mm -hmm. You care for people. And I think the, 
the other side of that, if it's a two sides of the same coin, if you want to say it that way, you've got mercy on one side, but the other side is hope. Mm-hmm. And you, we would talk about eschatological hope, which is hope about our future end. Yeah. Eschatology is the study of end times or end things. And there's an eschatological hope that we have as followers of Jesus that we believe that we will exist eternally in a new creation where sickness and pain and sorrow and and death will be vanquished from our midst and that will no longer be part of the world and revelation 21 22 right that there'll be no more tears right every tear wiped away from every eye mm-hmm. jesus says behold you know that he's seated on the throne he says behold i come to make all things new this is who we follow this is the hope that every single follower of jesus is promised and what happens is is you grab a hold of that hope and that's a future hope but it's it's happening now. It's alive now in our life. And you grab a hold of that future hope and you import it into the situation that we're in. And then you recognize that what if you only had two more months because you're going to die from this plague? Would you spend those two months caring for the sick and dying? Or mm. would you spend those two months running for the hills in fear? Because mm. you're promised something that can't be taken from you. Mm-hmm. And I, I, we say this once in a while at Christ. The worst thing that can happen to you is you die. And then it just gets better from there. Yeah. And that's not like pious, kind of pie no, in the sky, no. whatever, like rhetoric. That's no. not hyperbole. Like quite literally, you could die. Yeah. And as I said to our church on Sunday, 100% of us are going to die. Yeah. So we might as well deal with that now and allow the future hope to fuel us. Yeah. And underlying, of course, that hope and that mercy is, of course, like the work of Jesus Christ. Like if not for the life, death, resurrection, ascension, and soon return of Jesus, like that future hope and that mercy is all meaningless. Yeah. And I'm reminded even of how the Sermon on the Mount in chapter 8, Matthew 8, then tells a story of Jesus reaching out. And, and Matthew makes a point of saying that Jesus stretched out his hand right. and he touches a leper. Yeah. So here is like the Son of God, God incarnate, come and dwelt among us and, and reaching out and yeah. touching yeah. and not only healing people physically, but ultimately in his life, death and resurrection, healing people uh, from what ails them eternally. Right. From what ails their soul. Yeah. And, and, and while, while the pagan gods are, you know, it says in Elijah's account in 1 Kings 18, yeah. silent, not there, no one answered. I hear God has answered most profoundly yes. in the sending of his own son, Jesus. Like what a profound foundation for which to, like, to, to respond. Yeah. And I think like the mercy in our lives is in a certain sense in the middle of trials like this, like you're talking about having a future orientation yeah. and a God who hears us. Yeah. Mercy and showing mercy to others in the midst of trials, I think it's a litmus test for the authenticity of our faith. Mm. Like, do we believe that Jesus is honest and right when he tells us what he tells us about the future? Mm-hmm. Do we believe our Father mm-hmm. has prepared a place for us? Right. That there is no more suffering, sickness, death, pain, mourning, grief, anything anymore. That it's all gone. That there's no more depression, there's no more anxiety, there's no more fear. That there's a place of of total peace, acceptance, and joy where that's what you feel. Do we believe that? And the question is, if we believe that, that's the question. And the answer, if, if we say, yes, I believe that, I've staked my whole life on it then we will show mercy. So Tim Keller says in his book, um, Generous Justice, he says, if a person has grasped the meaning of God's grace in his heart, he will do justice. 
If he doesn't live justly, then he may say with his lips that he's grateful for God's grace, but in his heart he's far from him. If he doesn't care about the poor, it reveals that at best he doesn't understand the grace he's experienced, and at worst that he's not really encountered the saving mercy of God. He says grace should make you just. So, if we've encountered this God of grace and mercy who's given us this future promise, it means that that future promise should reorient the way that we view the world around us. And if it reorients the way we view the world around us, we shouldn't be running around terrified of death. Right. We're not, we're not unwise. Yeah. We don't have a death wish. We're not all base jumping with you know, wingsuits to get a rush. We're not doing unwise things. We're talking about when the nurses can no longer serve in the care homes or the elderly and sick are dying. Who should go? When I'm reminded not to take away from that, Brad, a couple of preachers getting preaching here. Yeah. Um, I'm reminded of C.S. Lewis, and, and he, he quotes a, a particular objection sometimes lobbied against Christians. That is, you know, they were so heavenly minded right. that they were no earthly good. And Lewis says, on the contrary, mm-hmm. it is only those who are heavenly minded who are of any right. <laughs> earthly good. Yeah. I think that's exactly what you're talking that's about, exactly right? Exactly it, and I and I think historically we can historically we can see it. Dion, uh, Dionysius and Cyprian, like uh, among others who were in the church in that era in the middle of the third century, are are showing that the Church of Jesus and the plague of Cyprian they valued their future hope more than their present circumstances. Yeah, like they allowed the future hope to inform their collective merciful consciousness that inspired the action for them to take care of the sick and dying. And so our hope is as pastors in Vancouver. That if it really gets bad here, we'll care for people. And if it gets really, really bad here and the medical professionals can't help anymore, that there's some of us who are just going to figure out what it means to take care of somebody in the, in the, the most measured way we know mm-hmm. and just at least comfort them in their death. Mm-hmm. I, if I can, maybe yeah. attempt to summarize what we're talking about here. So f- first off, we acknowledge like, what is happening in the deaths of all these people is evil that the world was not made to be like this, that this yeah. is a result of the world, the flesh, and the devil, yeah. uh, of a broken world, um, you know, lashing out for lack of a better term. Um, at the same time, I think we see that, that pattern in Scripture yeah. where what uh, the devil intends for evil, right. what the devil intends for destruction yep. and, and decay and all those bad things, and the Lord says, I'm going to use that for, for good. Is there... A chance, Brett, mm-hmm. that, that this might be actually an opportunity for the Church of Jesus around the globe. Mm-hmm. Is, is, that, is that a way to think about it? I don't think God wastes a crisis. Like, I just don't think he wastes an opportunity. And, uh, you know, I've had conversations with friends who, who pastor churches in, uh, you know, Portland, Seattle, Vancouver, Pacific Northwest. You know, we, we talk about this area of the world being very like those three cities like and, and one of my friends in Portland says um, he says what do you think it would take for a revival to come to Vancouver and I said I don't know man like it's just a sovereign move of God I don't know what that would actually look like I can't tell you that I know what it would look like and know what it would take and I turned around so what do you think it would take in Portland without missing a beat he goes massive earthquake lots of death mm-hmm. lots of destruction he said, we need something like that. And I mean, it's no secret that the churches in Manhattan filled up after 9-11. Yeah. When, when there's a lot of fear and a lot of anxiety and people are confronted with their own mortality, I think their own mortality and the questions of their own mortality will then draw them to the places of going, what do I really believe? Like, things have been pretty good so far, but what do I really believe? And I'm, I'm thinking about the church in China 
like like what's going on with this from Wuhan beyond into the other regions of the country? Uh, the government can't control it. They can't stop it. And if you're a party member there and you think the government's in control of everything, but they can't control this, mm-hmm. what does that say about your confidence in them? And perhaps there's another opportunity. And, the, you know, the underground church in China has been heavily persecuted. But at the same time, like, what if this is just an opportunity to show what Christian love looks like? Well, people head for the hills. Mm-hmm. And, and and Christians love each other and those who are left behind by those who are fleeing the cities. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm not saying that's happening there. I'm just saying, what if? Yeah. And I think, what if in Vancouver? Yeah. What if we're prepared for that? Yeah, I, I, I love uh, Tertullian, one of the church fathers, uh, writing second century. He said this uh, in, uh, in regards to sort of the Christian witness in the midst of these plagues and these terrible, terrible, evil things. He says this, It is our care of the helpless, our practice of loving kindness, that brands us in the eyes of many of our opponents. Only look, they say, look how they love one another. <laughs> I think it was Leslie Newbegin, who said that the final apologetic, am I right with this? Francis Schaeffer. Francis Schaeffer, yeah. thank you. Said the final apologetic, that like the, the greatest argument, one of the greatest arguments Christians yeah. can give uh, f- for their belief in Jesus, for the reality of Jesus Christ and what he's done for them, is how we love and care for one another and, yeah. as the rest of scriptures teach us, those beyond our walls. That's right. And, and I mean, John's gospel, John thirteen thirty five, right? They'll know, Jesus says, they'll know who I am by the way you love one another. And I don't think it's just when things are good. Maybe most especially when things are bad. Um, let's uh, let's give uh, Cyprian, the Bishop of Carthage, the last word on the way out. In On the Mortality, he wrote this. He said, The kingdom of God, beloved brethren, is beginning to be at hand. The reward of life and the rejoicing of eternal salvation and the perpetual gladness and possession lately lost of paradise are now coming with the passing away of the world. Already heavenly things are taking the place of earthly and great things of small and eternal things that fade away. What room, and and pardon me, and eternal things of things that fade away. What room is there for anxiety and solicitude? Who in the midst of these things is trembling and sad except he who is without hope and faith? For it is for him to fear death who is not willing to go to Christ. It is for him to be unwilling to go to Christ who does not believe that he is about to reign with Christ. Here Be Dragons is a podcast of Christ City Church in Vancouver. You can find us online at herebedragonspodcast.com or follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Dragon Podcast.